Hi, this is Ideas on Craft, a podcast about ideas on growth, progress, and prosperity. This is Ideas on Trapped, and I am here with Dolapo Oni. Welcome, Dolapo. Thank you for having me on your show, Toby. Let's talk about oil prices. I mean, this thing has been volatile for over a hundred years, but we saw negative numbers a few days ago. What happened there? Tell us what happened. Okay, um, it's pretty straightforward now, and the idea is to understand that oil typically sells in contracts that are settled either financially or physically. And what I mean settled, what that means is that at the end of the contract, when you buy an oil contract in the market, you either settle it for cash and there is no physical delivery of crude oil to you or you settle it and there's a physical delivery of crude oil for you. Brent is structured as a financial future. So if you buy Brent futures, you're only going to settle on a financial level. And you, there's an option for fiscal delivery, of course, for Brent as well, if you want as a refiner. But as a financial investor, if you buy Brent, you can settle financially. But for WTI, which is a reference benchmark for crude produced in the U.S., there is only a fiscal delivery. And what that means is that if you participate in a contract in WTI, you have to accept fiscal delivery at the end of the contract. Now, a lot of financial investors, derivative um, traders rather, bought into WTI May contract in March, which is sold two months earlier and settles in April. They bought the WTI May contract and in the hopes that after the announcement of the deal with OPEC, oil prices were going to rise significantly. But they didn't because there's still oversupply everywhere. And um, even America itself is still pumping at record levels of 13 million barrels per day. So in terms of actual crude oil. So the market, it was out of storage. At Cushing, Oklahoma, where the fiscal delivery is done, there's literally no tank storage left anymore. So you have to take fiscal delivery. You have to organize logistics. And it's landlocked. So you have to organize logistics to take it to a ship from Cushing. Um, so there's all sorts of complications. So on that particular day when the contract was being settled, traders that held on to the last minute, hoping that there will still be some sort of recovery in prices, got themselves stranded. There was no logistic prepared. There was no storage available. They just had to find a way to get rid of the contract because they couldn't accept fiscal delivery. For instance, I'm a trader sitting somewhere in Switzerland that bought the WTI May contract. How do I, how do I accept fiscal delivery? They were all forced to sell at whatever prices they could get in the market. In fact, it had to go into negative because buyers were like, look, I'm not going to take the fiscal delivery for you if I'm still going to have to pay you for the crude oil. And so they had to start even paying the buyers to actually accept uh, the crude oil. And that's why we went into negative territory in, in, in that particular market. And so that's why you see prices are back. But at the same time, um, there's still that worry for the June contract also too. So we saw that immediately after the June, after the WTI contract closed on the 20th of April, and we started trading the June contract from the 21st and 22nd, that also immediately started diving and dragged the Brent crude down with it as well. But it's back up to 17 at the moment. It doesn't change the fact that there's still worry and there's still lack of shortage. So when we're getting close to June, uh, sorry, to May 20 again, we're going to go into this drama all over again. Yeah, let's talk about the implications for Nigeria. Of course, we are not trading, we don't export the WTI. I think yeah, we, yeah. we do Brent. So, yeah. but I mean, there's still that worry mm-hmm. that prices could uh, really, really drop really low for the Brent. So, my question is this How come after all these years, we are still so susceptible? budgetary wise and even in terms of the macro economy we are still so susceptible and reliant on a commodity that we know has an history of volatility i mean it's baffling what's going on honestly i think okay so there are two parts to your question because the first part is is it going to affect nigeria of course it's going to affect nigeria and we all see that it's already starting to in fact since January, you know that crude oil prices have dropped like almost 50% from, you know, $50 more and above to uh, in the, into the 20s where we are currently. And I was monitoring it yesterday. I mean, it was it day before yesterday, rather, we got as low as $15.98 in the Brent. And mind you, Nigerian crude, which always usually trades at a premium to Brent, is still currently trading in the market below Brent. So when Brent was already at 15.98, Nigerian crude oil was far below $15, was selling in the range of about $12, $13. So 
that point is, first of all, a, a major cause of concern for the government in the sense that whatever revenue projections they have, don't forget, we had $57 as our fiscal benchmark price for crude. It's currently $30 and crude is still selling way below that $30. So are we going to adjust downward and all that? Yes. So it is going to affect Nigeria. And I think I've cataloged four major reasons why it's going to affect Nigeria really heavily from the next from next month. Number one is the fact that, of course, the low price is already one effect. The second thing is the fact that because we are below $20, now the Deepwater Royalties Act, which was signed into law in November last year by Buari, which increased royalties for deepwater operations, which are the bulk of our production in Nigeria, that royalty, a lot of it was price-based, that if prices are above a certain range, you pay this amount. If prices are above $10 higher, you pay this amount. If prices are $10 higher, you pay 2.5% more and so on. Now, Prices are below the benchmark of $20, which was the benchmark set in that particular royalties act. And that means that as per the price-based aspect of that royalty law, we're getting zero. So from now on, we're going to get only a flat rate of 10%. Unlike before, where we could potentially have gotten 20% or higher as royalties, we're getting 10% flat across all fields in the deep water under the PSC arrangement. Now, that's significant also too because royalties are a major part of how we get revenue from the oil and gas industry and then taxes are also going to fall because prices are lower so that's that's an implication another part to this whole thing also too is the fact that we also are going to reduce our output by 400,000 by may also too which is our agreement with opec in terms of the opec cuts our own share yeah. of the cut was 400,000 barrels that is massive Losing 400,000 barrels, no matter what the excuse is, is going to be massive for Nigeria because we are then stuck with a lower output, lower price, lower royalties, lower taxes. And then to add to that, the complication is the fact that we also still have an overhang in the market. We still have over some 60 plus cargoes that are not yet sold, overhang from several months back now that are still in the market looking for buyers. So that's going to also add to the lag in terms of when the revenues come in as well too, in addition to the lower revenues that we're getting. So it is going to hit Nigeria significantly. And as always, there's always a lag effect for Nigeria. So within that lag effect, for some reason, our government always tends to be like, you know what, don't worry, it's, we are going to survive, we are fine, we are going to be fine, we are going to be fine, until it hits and then there's panic, you know. So I, I think the hesitation to actually look at other viable options to reduce our dependence on oil is something that is a major critical issue that we need to use when we are electing our leaders. Yeah. Because I don't see new ideas in terms of what will take oil's place being discussed there's literally no real effort if you think about it what exactly is being propped up as a solution or as an alternative to oil there's really nothing being propped up the whole idea is let's just get more oil and see what we can do we're not talking about how do we get uh, more of the informal sector into the formal sector so that we can actually see how we can raise tax revenue no we're talking about okay let's see how we can tax more the sector that is already overtaxed. I keep telling people that the only reason why oil is so, we are so exposed to oil is the fact that the oil sector is the only sector that we have effectively taxed well enough. If possible, we have overtaxed it. All companies pay 85% of their profit. They pay royalties. They pay all sorts. Uh, we delay their cost sharing. Their cost recovery is spread over five, five years. All sorts. We tax it so well, and that's why we are so exposed to it at the same time. But the other sectors that we could have taxed as well too, we haven't really taxed them well. As a developing country, I understand that there's limit to which you can tax because you also want to put more income in the hands of people so that they can spend more and the economy can grow. But at the same time, you also need to ensure that you are bringing more of the informal sector into the formal sector so that you can actually have a wider tax base to tax. And that's where I think the real problem is. Yes. I want to explore a bit of the political economy here uh, mm -hmm. briefly. So now, as I discussed with one of my guests, yeah. It seems that until we start earning zero from oil for a while, mm. before our leaders start thinking <laughs> about alternatives, you know, it's true. because it seems like it's as true. long as there's something coming in, however meager, however small, however, you know, I mean, yeah. there was always that incentive to wait and see. I mean, yeah. it's going to go back up. You know, yeah. why are we so? Why are we in that trap? It's baffling to me, genuinely. Why are okay. we in that trap? See, Toby, I always tell people that, and this is going to sound a bit controversial. So, 
I know, I know your guests are going to come after me and you for this, but <laughs> <laughs> see, as long as we have that four-year system of government where you know as a leader that you only have four years within which to achieve whatever you want to personally achieve within that governance range, there's no real incentive and you're not really guaranteed a second term, especially now that we have an incumbent that has lost elections. Even if you come, when you come back a second term, most times, most of them, the target is really to still fulfill their personal agenda, not necessarily national interest. There is a short time within which you, you have to do a lot. And there are several stakeholders that you have to bring on your side to actually make the reforms work. So our political system, essentially, the way it is set up, doesn't really give you a lot of leeway to influence a lot of things. Because, for instance, we've been talking about cutting the cost of governance for so long. And I was privileged to work in the presidency during my youth service. Um, I worked in the office of the Secretary General under one of the palm secs, and, and I had direct exposure to, I mean, the amount of waste we have in government. Every little thing from how pencils are bought to snacks for visitors to the amount of money that is paid directly in cash to um, government, government officials for the maintenance of their office, different, all kinds of different monies here and there, you know. And... You could see that, look, this system of government, if this is what is being done across all ministries, across all officials, official levels in government, then government is always going to be very expensive. And where I'm going to with that is the fact that as long as we have that sort of system, it's going to be difficult, you know, to say you want to actually switch to something else that is not that you're going to have to cultivate over time. What I've said is the easy solution would have been is that we need to find a way to increase our oil production actually. So if we can find a way to raise oil production to 4 million barrels per day, increase yeah. the revenue we get from oil, and I then mean, we, we actually we, can we, use that to invest in other sectors and get other sectors up to the level where they can even give us up to 50% of what oil is giving us, then we know that if oil falls to zero, we actually have something we have used that oil sector to develop. So in a way, maybe it's going to be the IT sector with all the um, fintech companies that are coming up. Maybe it's going to be backed up by Nollywood with all their movie productions, or it's going to be the agricultural sector. We need to find that sector fast and start investing massively in it. But I don't think at the moment we know what sector that sector is. And our leaders are not in the kind of political setup that allows them to think that independently. Yeah, let's talk about productivity now. You talked about raising oil production. What are the barriers to doing that? Because we've been doing 2 million barrels a day now for about 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. I read the op-ed in this day newspaper by the former chief of staff, God rest his soul. The royalties are only going to raise about $500 million additional revenue for the government. Mm -hmm. And the first thought that came to my mind was, I mean... You're, you're raising just $500 million, but there is no talk about raising production. There is no talk about exporting more, getting more from this commodity. I mean, you, you just want to raise more money from the existing stock of production. Exactly. Exactly. That's all. That's all we do. Try to get more money from the people that are already overtaxed, from the people that are already paying so much. But you see, to answer your question... Um, the real limit is the fact that, number one, we have an OPEC quota as an OPEC member of 2.5 million barrels per day. That's the max OPEC allows us to pump. That's under normal market conditions where prices are above $50. But where prices are where they are right now, we start to get all sorts of court suggestions. And don't forget, since the last crash in 2015-2016, we were allowed to only pump 1.8 million barrels in terms of actual crude oil and then condensates of an additional 200 or so. So we've been effectively at 2 million barrels per day since last crash when the market recovered, especially after we sorted out all the Niger Delta issues then. So right now, we are also going to now go down to 1.4. The real limitation is the OPEC quota. That's first of all, that's one. Then the second one, which is also major, is the fact that we also have a very topsy-turvy relationship with the oil majors. Don't forget, we don't have the capital to actually invest and bring a lot of our fields online. We actually have enough resource in the ground. In fact, let me add one more dimension to that. We have, at the moment, we have about 38 billion barrels in oil reserves, which will last us at the rate of production for roughly another 50 plus years. But more importantly, there is very little exploration going on 
in Nigeria for new barrels. And that's why if you look at reserve replacement ratios for most of the oil majors in their West African operations or their African operations, which is primarily Nigeria for most of them, there is very little reserve replacement going on there. The ratios are really low. And then the second part of that is the fact that in addition to the exploration, our existing wells, according to OPEC, they are not even deep enough. So we're not even tapping into lower reservoir levels that are actually available in many other countries that we haven't even tapped into because, number one, for cost management issues, most of our oil wells, we only dig them up to a certain level and then we, we once we find oil at that level, we stop there and we move on because to preserve cost and all that. So we could actually even be sitting on potentially more reserves if we do more exploration or even we take our existing wells and we drill them lower. So those are two additional dimensions to our reserve issues, which should ensure that we can actually produce more. But we don't even have the kind of rapport with the oil and gas companies, with the oil majors. On one hand, we're suing them to court because we think that they are, they are taking more oil out of Nigeria than they're actually reporting. On the other hand, we're telling them that why are you guys not producing more? You guys need to produce more. On the other hand, we're also suing them that, oh, um, there are some existing deals in the past that you haven't done very well. So we're suing you to court. We want to take back those oil blocks. On one hand, we're also telling them that, look, we're not going to sign your new licenses until you pay higher royalties and higher. So there's all sorts of discussions, negative and positive, going on at every point in time that ensures that the oil majors don't really prioritize Nigeria anymore. I can tell you for a fact that a lot of them would rather do shale in America than put a new, a new dime in Nigeria. So how do you get more production? When you personally, your own cash calls on JVs, you're not able to fund we owed them JV cash calls for several years until the last regime tried to create a system for us to pay it off out of new production that is meant to come on stream. Um, and most of that has been paid off. And then we also have issues with funding our own blocks. Because when you look at blocks that are owned primarily by NNPC and even some indigenous operators, FID or cash calls or funding those particular blocks have taken years before they've actually been able to move ahead. So there's no way you can increase production. But if we could increase production, that would because for a country that is the size of Nigeria, 2 million barrels is ridiculous. Even Canada, that has less than us in terms of population, had to ramp up. They were sitting at 3.7 at some point, currently pumping about almost 6 million barrels. They had to ramp up production because they realized that, look, we need more revenue. Mm. Mm. So what are the political reforms, in your opinion, Mm. that you think can move the lever on that. You talk about our current electoral system. How would you fix that if you were in the position? Okay, so that is where, um, again, let's be controversial here. We, yeah, have to consider the, we have to consider the possibility of a single-term, six-year government. And the reason why I said that is because people might quickly say, look, um, when you are there for one year and the moment you enter, there's no incentive to actually do anything and you are stuck. We are now stuck with you for six years. We need to think outside that. We've seen leaders that have been appointed in Nigeria without debate, not telling us what their plans are, only giving us the usual party rhetoric. We are going to build roads, we are going to build hospitals, we are going to build schools, blah, 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 blah. No, we need actual critical, you know, thinking leaders so that come to a debate that tell us that this is what they want to do and they can answer questions we must find a way of structuring it into our system to ensure that our leaders are actually accountable to us for instance buari would have gone this whole entire period without speaking to us if not that people kept on crying out for him to talk to us whereas in other countries around the world nobody has to ask President Trump to stand before his people. Nobody had to ask presidents in Ghana and several other countries to stand before their people. But Nigeria, we had to go on Twitter. Uh, National Assembly had to write, Senate wrote. Everybody was shouting, Buhari, come and talk to us. Before our president decided to talk to us, it's ridiculous. We need to have a system that ensures that leaders are just accountable to their people. When we call for them, they have to respond. So that's, I don't know how we're going to structure that. And, and I don't claim to be a political scientist or an expert on that. We have to find a way of structuring that into the system. Another thing we also have to look at reforming is our constitution really has to also include a way to ensure that we privatize to some large extent the oil and gas industry. Now, let me explain what I mean. Honestly, if you think about it, what has NNPC really added in terms of value to the uh, oil and gas industry? Production has increased. The downstream sector has had several issues with supplies. Yes, we now have a bit of a respite, and that's not happening anymore. And this is me speaking from a school of thought, but to be very sincere, I kind of agree. 
let's privatize the whole thing. Let's just privatize the entire oil sector. And all government needs to do is just take taxes and take royalties and move on. No involvement in terms of we're also funding our own production or we're also funding. Let all companies explore to their heart's delight whatever they want to produce and, you know, and uh, ensure that they actually can produce what they want to produce. Because as long as we have that system where everybody is under one particular national regulator and who is also doubling as an operator and also doubling as a tax collector for the government at the same time, it creates a lot of confusion in the sector because NFPC people come and tell you that they are not your regulator, but at the same time, you can't move ahead on several fields where they are partners unless you have their permission. So it becomes a bit of a restriction when you want to actually move forward on this oil production aspect. So in terms of political reforms, the key thing for me starts at the top. We need to find a way to ensure that our leaders are more accountable. We need to create a system where a leader knows that he's just there for one term and so he needs to actually work, but he also has a longer time period within which to implement his plans because I think you will need at least four or five years to actually get some of these things rolling because oil production does take time. For instance, you can't find an oil field today and produce it within three years. You may be able to do it in other parts of the world, but it hasn't really worked that way in Nigeria. And we need to consider that. Yeah, yeah. So much to chew on with that. So much yeah. to chew on. So let's move on. The central bank has been doing what some people call unconventional monetary policy in the last couple of years. Uh, the central bank governor has become quite powerful, quite mm-hmm. political, in my opinion. Yeah, and true. Currently, the former governor of Lagos State wrote an article saying, oh, we should print money. I don't know what that means because the central bank already monetizes most of the federal government's debts. So what is going on, really? What is going on with central banking in Nigeria? I, I don't understand. This one off me, like they say. it's true because honestly when you have uh, you know in an economic system you you have your fiscal policy which is meant to be run by the government and then you have your monetary policy which is typically run by the central bank in an economy where government has not been fiscally responsible the central bank is under a lot of pressure to use its own tools of monetary policy to try and achieve what the government at the center is trying to achieve because they are not being fiscally responsible. Um, we've talked about cutting the cost of government and we said, look, that is one key thing that has to be done. But that's on the fiscal side and there's really nothing CBN can do to reduce the cost of governance when the government at the center itself is not doing it. So what CBN has to do, unfortunately, is try to use monetary tools like it's currently using, paying off debts for government, you know, printing Naira and just literally giving it to the government. Because if you think about it, that's what the, that's what CBN has been doing. CBN has literally been just printing money and giving it to government to execute their own projects to cover their recurrent expenditure because oil revenues have fallen significantly over the last year. So that's one. Another thing also, too, that I think the CBN governor is realizing is that most of us even thought that he was going to be asked to leave the office because uh, when, the new, when they got into the office again and a lot of people started speculating that, oh, this person or that person was going to become the CBN governor. But it was always clear that he had listened so well to the government. He had done everything they had wanted. He had given them all the money they wanted. So there was just no way they were going to kick him out. They would need someone who already understood their system of working to stay in the office. And that's why they kept him. I think, in a way, the CBN is really overstepping its bounds and creating a lot of confusion in the system. Uh, For instance, we were talking about FPI investors yesterday with a couple of friends, and a lot of them are trapped in the markets right now because there's just no dollars for them to get out of the market. The ones that had not left are trapped. Because if you look at non-deliverable forwards for Nigerian Naira now, it's close It's close to 500. I think that's where they are right now. And of course, CBN is not going to pay anybody that extra amount to buy the dollar. So we are looking at a situation where even investors are like, what the heck is CBN doing? What the heck is going on? So that's one thing I feel is the reason why CBN is behaving the way it's behaving. So uh, let, let's talk about the capital market a bit. Uh, yeah. We've seen a lot of wealth get destroyed in the past 10 years, so to speak. I don't agree to inflation or the policy environment. And one question I want to ask, and again, I should say for the audience that we are not giving investment advice. So this is mm-hmm. hypothetical. So how can I protect my wealth in Nigeria? I mean, what are the investment options in the capital market? 
Okay, thank you very much. And uh, this is something I've touched on a lot recently because um, I've been I've been someone that has also you know suffered that value destruction in the capital market in Nigeria. And I mean, like you rightly alluded, is one of the major reasons that that happens is because of the exchange rate. Because if you look at the trend of the naira against stronger currencies, especially the USD, over the last 20, 30 years the Naira has consistently lost against those currencies. And um, so whatever wealth you have managed to build, whatever returns you have gained in that same period, most times has been wiped out by the exchange devaluation. I mean, take, for instance, just 2015-2016 alone, when we had the two devaluations that took us from 155 to 198 and then from 198 to 360, that was a uh, devaluation of almost well over 100% that wiped out you know a lot of um, returns on the exchange if you were converting your money back into dollars so i mean i always tell people that the first step really is to ensure that you have a significant portion of your wealth in a stronger currency preferably the usd um, some will suggest even the british pound which is stronger than usd some will suggest the euro uh, but i'm always a fan of the usd in the sense of it's um, the fact that you can exchange it easily into several other currencies, the fact that you can use it to buy assets in several other parts of the world. So USD for me, preferably, is a stronger currency of choice. And not just buying the USD and keeping your funds in raw cash, but then you can buy USD bonds, denominated bonds. A lot of these are available with uh, investment houses now that offer you access to buy euro bonds that are denominated in USD of different countries and also of corporate institutions as well. Um, another option would be to also consider the possibility of keeping the bulk of your uh, funds also outside the country, specifically buying assets in other markets outside the country so that you can actually tap into returns that are available to investors on, say, for instance, the New York Stock Exchange or, I mean, uh, on NASDAQ and so on. And the reason why I say this is primarily because of the exchange rate and also because of the inflation environment in Nigeria. Um, if you look at the current situation, our return on fixed income in Nigeria is not inflation adjusted. If you look at the real rate of return, what you can get is significantly lower than what the inflation rate is. And so you are losing money also in the real terms of purchasing power of your, of your money. So you need to look for where you can get inflation adjusted returns. And this is very critical because when you are building wealth in a country like Nigeria, you have to factor in exchange rates. You have to factor in inflation. All these things are eating away at the purchasing power of your Naira. So you have to always make sure that you are constantly adjusting for what's happening with the exchange rate and what's happening with inflation rates. And I think um, purchasing foreign denominated assets, US denominated assets is the way to go. Oh, okay. A bit of a curveball here. Let's look at pensions. Yeah. Someone tweeted that the federal government, I don't know, maybe half jokingly, should make the, the pension fund, at least through the RSAs, a bit more liquid for Nigerians, and that you know by the time it gets to maturity, inflation and other factors would have destroyed a lot of uh, of the of the <laughs> fund. Of the yeah. yeah. So now my question is this: Is there a real threat to people's pension funds in Nigeria with the way things are going? You know. I mean, for pensions denominated in Naira, I, I, I don't see a real issue in the sense that even if we borrow a lot of it to the government, I think people will, will still get paid because government can print Naira and refund their money back to them. So that isn't a problem. But in terms of actual returns being generated on those pension funds and ensuring that they remain inflation adjusted, I, I, don't, I don't see any real performance. I mean, look at the performance level. Uh, there was a time I was looking at those figures and I think... and. I, Forgive me if this is a bit old, but I think the last time I looked at the rate of return on pension funds in Nigeria was probably in 2018. And even then, they were not, the performance wasn't that fantastic. A lot of the pension funds were performing well below inflation rate. If you consistently continue to deliver returns that are below inflation, then you are actually losing purchasing power as your inflation grows or as time goes. And that's the real situation of pension funds in Nigeria. So there's no real threat of losing money in terms of what we borrow to the government, but there is in terms of erosion in the value of you know that naira by the time you actually retire say for instance someone that has worked for 30 plus years and has only earned an average an annual average of about say seven to eight percent on his um, pension funds whereas inflation in nigeria has tended to always stay in the range of eight to say 15 you know 19 percent 
that's going to be a serious erosion when this person retires. So no matter the amount you retire with, it's not going to be enough to afford your kind of lifestyle uh, when you retire. So I'd say there's a yes and no answer to that to, to that question. Okay. So a few days ago, the FIR released a document. There are still doubts as to the veracity of that document but there has not been an official denier yet <laughs> yes because they say you never believe anything in nigeria until they've officially denied it yeah so uh saying something truly strange in my opinion that companies should try to pay their taxes early even possibly before they've audited their books and then the twitter account went after the telecom sector Rather yeah. strangely, again, in my opinion. Yeah, rather strangely. Uh, what what is going on? I understand that the government is in a tough spot. Yes. The economy is surely going to contract. The revenue sources are shrinking, and yeah. it's going to be. But going after businesses is that really smart? I don't think it is. I mean, it's ridiculous. When I saw the um, memo, and I, I read it thoroughly. I had to take time to actually read it two times just to be sure that I was reading it right because I saw it and then I'd seen a previous tweet where someone was talking about it and I was like, no, that's not possible. Maybe the person didn't understand what FRF was saying. And then I went to look for the letter and I found it and I read it twice and I was like, oh my God, how do you expect any business at all at this particular time to be doing well and to be ready to actually pay taxes ahead of you know auditing of their books or whatever it doesn't make any sense and then i know specifically they said that oh they know that there are some particular sectors that are doing well at this time because people are at home and as a result they are ordering more food they are they are spending more time on phone they are using more data so as a result telecoms companies especially should be wow i was like do you recognize the fact that economic activities have reduced significantly means that telecoms have actually lost a lot more? What is the amount of data that will be used by consumers in residential areas or not even working? Especially when you recognize the fact that the bulk of the Nigerian economy is informal. You still, exactly. we still have to, I don't think we have come to grips with how informal our economy really is. And this informal sector means that people that have to go out every day to actually transact their business, otherwise they are not actually making money. As a result, they are not actually using those services. So you can't tell me any particular sector has done very well. The key sector in Nigeria that generates a lot of the revenue for government is hurting significantly. And that sector has a lot of linkages with most other sectors. I'm talking about the oil and gas industry and has a lot of linkages yeah. with several other sectors that actually helps those other sectors. I mean, oil and gas affects banking, affects telecoms, affects, you know, even retail experience, affects several other sectors. And that sector is hurting. So there's no way you can tell me that it hasn't impacted on those other sectors significantly. So... I think it's a it, it's part of the desperation we're seeing on the side of government to find sources of money anywhere. They've approached IMF for money. They've approached World Bank for money. They're trying to sell marginal fields. It's all about money. It's not really about getting more production because we know we have an OPEC quota. We have an OPEC court also to implement. So selling marginal fields right now means that we're talking about just raising money. We're not caring about whether those people will be able to produce or not. And because even if they want to produce, we have to streamline their production to meet our open quota, so our open cuts. So it's all part of government moves to find ways to raise money because I think it's really going to start hurting from next month. Mm, mm, interesting. Yeah. And since we are on regulators here, another piece of news is the CBN taking $3.8 billion as penalty or fine from banks that did not meet up the directive on lending. To, to the real sector, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Again, what are the implications of that? I mean, is that really... I'm struggling to understand <laughs> the constitutionality of some of, of these that. moves. And yeah. again, the economy-wide implications. Because $3.8 billion, well, it may not be much, but it, it's also a significant haircut for that sector. It is. It is. And this is a sector that is about to start hurting from loans that have been given to oil and gas companies that will start to have issues from this month because of all the oil revenue issues that we're seeing in the market. 
Um, I, I know that that sector always tries to be, you know, proactive with those loans. But the fact is, we are going to see that that revenue impact hit the banking sector from this May. And depending on how strong the bank is, it will have significant impact on their books. So taking an additional 3.8 for, for something totally different in terms of loans that should have been given or fines for not giving loans to the real sector is, is a major haircut for that business. And of course, you know how banks will typically react. They're going to look at some branches and lay off people. They're going to uh, cut costs to try and survive that process. That's what will happen. And then we increase unemployment in the economy and so on. That's typically how banks would react. Lay off people and shut down operations in some places for a while and then you know, hope that they get over that period. So you're basically increasing the problem, you know, in the economy by doing that. Another thing is, like you said, the constitutionality of that thing. I think as a regulator, to some extent, CBN has those powers to implement those sort of sanctions on banks. But it goes again into what we were talking about earlier when we said CBN is being forced to use monetary policy to try to achieve what should be achieved by fiscal policy. Government is the one that's supposed to be trying to grow the real sector. Government is the one that's supposed to be trying to use its fiscal abilities of, you know, spending and taxing and revenue collection and all sorts to actually try and improve things in the real sector. But no, CBN is having to drive liquidity into the real sector by using monetary policy, sanctioning banks and all that. And that doesn't augur well for the economy because, again, it helps you to create a fiscally irresponsible government, a government that would rather spend all its own money on recurrent rather than capital expenditures, a government that would rather not adopt really clear long-term policies of developing the real sector, but rather look for short, 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 small, small wins here and there instead. And that's the situation I think we find ourselves. It's, it's really terrible. Mm-hmm. Again, let me put you on the spot yeah, a bit. We talk all the time about diversifying the economy. How hmm. exactly can we do that? What are the available options? I know we've talked about the political incentives, but in terms <laughs> of actual policy now, yeah. what, what are our realistic options? Okay, I mean, if we want to be real, if we want to be real, I think we have to face the fact that the first step for me is we need to open the economy up a bit. The current government seems to love a statist approach where government controls the factors of production a lot more. Government controls the economy to a larger extent. We need to get the private sector more involved in the economy a lot more. What I mean by that really is that it seems that the government is a bit, it's not so open to businesses being able to run without a lot of interruptions. The government wants to have a very clear hand in how things are done. A good example, for instance, would be the oil and gas industry. And that, for me, is the first starting point. Let's start with the oil and gas industry. Government should privatize everything there. Let the oil and gas sector run as a pure private venture. The only thing government does there should be regulation. Privatize NMPC, privatize the refineries, get out of it, and all you are collecting is just your tax. Issue your licenses through DPR, your permits and all that, and then you just collect tax. Forget anything like government involvement in allocation of this or that, blocks and all that. Anybody that wants to own blocks can own blocks. Anybody that wants to buy blocks can buy blocks. Anybody that wants to produce can produce. Anybody that needs to raise money. Because that sector finds it a lot easier to bring funds or FDI into the country. And that's because, I mean, even as we speak, I know venture capital firms, even on this side of the world in Canada, that are asking that, okay, they are sort of still interested in Nigerian oil and gas industry because they believe there's still a lot of potential there. And even though oil is in the cycle it is currently, we know that oil is going to come out of that cycle and then there will be opportunities again for oil to, to be a profitable business. So there's still attraction to that segment. So privatize it, let it run fully. Now, the funds that are generated from that sector will create you know, opportunities for other segments. More realistically now, We've seen how transformative telecoms are. I think another key sector for us will be services. Services like, you know, um, we have telecoms running very well. There's value in entertainment. There's value in education. There's value in so many other service-related segments that we know we can actually push funds into and actually generate some sort of viable sector. 
for instance, education is one that we haven't really paid attention to in a long time. And in some other countries around the world, that is a big deal. A lot of our students go to other parts of the world to go and learn. And we've seen how private universities have come up in the last, say, decade, and they've become even better than some of the older universities. There are a few of the older universities that still continue to compete, but the private education has actually taken up a lot more. And that's a segment that if you actually allow really develop very well, it can go places. Privatize all these universities, get them off your books as a government and let them run as they should run properly. A lot of the debates currently around getting lecturers into the IPs program is really because everything is funded by government. If government gets out of all those things and those universities have to sit up and actually provide what they should provide so that they can get students to actually attend their universities, you realize that they will become a lot more efficient. They have no choice but to become more efficient. But then again, education is going to become more expensive. And that's a totally different discussion because I know people are always sensitive around fees paid for education, but that has to happen if you want to get these universities up to standard, competing with their peers, even across Africa, let alone the rest of the world. We have a value in the entertainment industry that we can derive. A lot of movies shot in Nigeria are watched across Africa. That's a viable export product as well. But that industry is not well-structured. It's not well... Uh, I mean, Nigerian movies are landing up on Netflix, landing up on film festivals around the world. That industry needs support. It has a huge potential. At the point in time, I, I remember they were saying the numbers were like the same volumes that were being pushed in the Nollywood industry were comparable to the volumes in Bollywood and some other country, um, Hollywood and so on. But I think that has fallen back a bit because there hasn't been that much investment in that segment. So that's the segment that can develop significantly. Sports is another segment that can deliver significant returns. We have a lot of potential in the sports segment, soccer academies, um, sports and so on that can really grow. I think realistically, if we want to adopt a strategy to actually fully diversify the economy, it starts with, with us opening up the economy, getting the private sector more involved, and then picking segments where we already have some strengths. These are the ones I think I just mentioned recently, um, oil and gas, you know, services, education, entertainment, and possibly to some extent agriculture. But I think we still have a long way to go with the agricultural sector. Okay. Okay. I, I hear you. Now, here's my <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah, here's my question. Now, when we talk about things like privatize the oil sector, privatize universities, you can almost guess the public reactions that, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. you are anti-poor. We are treating petroleum prices as a kind of public good, like roads, for example. I think a lot of the public attitude towards public universities is the same, you know? Oh, these things are what makes education still affordable for the poor, and you want to take it away because when they are in private hands, inevitably prices are going to go up. So now, two questions for you in, in that area. One is that how can people say like you and I who try to educate the public in a way, improve the messaging that Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not really always like that, you know, yeah. and these things being privatized would actually make them more effective, you know. And secondly, how should the government ensure that there's really no funny business after this yeah, yeah. privatization, like syndicating mm-hmm. prices and monopolizing <laughs> services and things that would confirm the public bias, so to speak? So those are my questions. Okay, those are really significant questions because that's actually a lot of challenge with this line of thinking. Once you start talking about prioritizing all these things, the problem is always those things come up and you're thinking, okay, what is the possibility that there will be collusion in pricing, you know, and what if all the private investors just decide, okay, I think I need to price myself higher than Bangkok or I need to be like, you know, and that takes it out of the reach of a lot of people. And again, against the backdrop of the fact that Nigeria still is largely a poor country, we have largest population of poor people around in the world and so on. So there's, I, I get where that is coming from. So again, like you said, we need to see how we can improve the message. And to a large extent, that would mean that we would have to take a graduated approach, basically. Now, and what I mean by that is we won't just privatize at once. What government needs to do is give a clear plan that, okay, look, over the next four years, our aim is to get out of education on the federal level. 
we will have state universities. And if you look at countries around the world that even have private education, like American likes, there are still state colleges, state colleges that are funded by the state. It won't be like government is totally out. There will be state college options, which would be funded to a small extent, but the federal government at the center should get out of education entirely. And the reason why I say that is that you still have to create options for people who still won't be able to afford those high education fees. So there has to be some sort of either a scholarship program that targets the lower income segments of society or uh, state colleges, which must be limited to an extent, you know, because the whole idea is to get government out of it so that people know that there is still some sort of support for them. Because that's critical in the messaging that, look, it's not like we're anti-poor people. We're still for you guys, and we want to ensure your kids get educated, but we also want to raise the standard of education. So there'll be scholarship programs that will enable you to attend the private universities if you measure up to the academic performance that is required, or you can go to the state colleges, which would be cheaper and would be affordable, and you can go to those ones without any need for government support. Now, so that, that option will be created. Over time, the idea would be to get even those state colleges to a point where they can actually run by themselves without government intervention. So first of all, you need to take that graduated approach to make it easier for people. And then in terms of educating the populace to understand that um, this is for the better is we need to actually put all the data out there. We need to put all the information out there. And look at look at what's happening in this country and that country. Do all the comparisons. Make sure that it's out there. Because see, I think the problem is often that people don't know. And so because they don't know that there's a better way of doing things, they will criticize when you suggest it and you don't give them the facts. I feel that a lot of the education in Nigeria is to be very sincere, is substandard to an extent because we are shut off in a way from comparison with other countries and other um, study approaches that we see in other parts of the world. And that's why a Nigerian student will go through a university as a mechanical engineer and would never once sit down in a lab with various engines and actually study them and actually work on them and yet qualify as a medical engineer or qualify as a computer scientist without actually building a computer at the end of his study or whatever, because there's so much facility that is not available. And so we need to bring all these facts out to the public that this is how we are shortchanging ourselves by continuing at this standard of education, whereas it could be better if we actually opened up and allowed these universities to run properly. And that's why, again, I admit that you do get some of the really bright students that go to some of the older universities and try to, you know, really showcase their own ability. But oftentimes it's not really because of the university, but because of how those students have applied themselves. And that's why to a large extent, I still feel that the way to go would be a lot of private education versus a lot of government funded universities. So the messaging for me is that we need to create a clearly graduated plan to get government out of the educational system and make it very obvious and also make it very, um, make put the information out there comparing the standards, also showing people that look, this is what we get if we go this way and this is the value to bring to the economy and this is how we tend to go about it so that people understand. And this is how we will continue to support throughout the process that look, we'll create these opportunities, we'll create these alternatives to ensure that everybody is still carried along. Oh, we'll have the state colleges and then we'll still have scholarship options if you meet up to the academic requirement. I think that would even encourage a lot of students to perform more rather than discourage them. It says that when they know that, oh, if I can perform up to this educational level, I'll be able to attract this level of support from government. And then we can bring... I mean, private institutions pay 2% educational levy. All that should go into funding education for people that meet up to the academic requirements. And I think that would motivate a lot more performance. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, it does to a point. Final question for you. What are your predictions for the Nigerian economy in the next five years? Uh, three. Give us three predictions. Okay. Um, I mean... Within the next five years, we know there will be an election. So I'm always cautious once, <laughs> <laughs> once, you, once you go past the election cycle because anything can happen. We saw yeah. 
Obasanjo had plans for to sell a lot of oil to the Chinese and then get oil infrastructure in return. And Yadua came in and cancelled all that. So that tends to happen with Nigerian governments. And we know that this is also Buhari's last tenure. So a new president will be coming in. So five years is possibly too long. I could say in the next three years, and if, if that's okay with you, let me just say okay. three years. Okay. In the next, okay, yeah. So in the next three years, I think, uh, more importantly, I, I believe there will be a recovery in oil already. And that would help adjust things back for the Naira in terms of strengthening back again against the dollar. But I think it will only be a return back to the current levels of about 300, 360 to 400. I think the Naira will stay around that range. Currently, it's depreciating a lot worse, and I think it should get worse by the end of the year, but we should see a recovery back in the next three years, back to this same level. That's one. The next thing I see also, too, uh, in terms of the Nigerian economy is that contraction. I think this particular drop in productivity and this particular period that we have gone through, which has impacted our economy significantly, will still have spillover effects into the next three years. Possibly we'll see GDP growth stay really lower than 2% for the next three years. First of all, because there will be a recession this year, um, and then there will be really low growth, if any growth at all. I'm talking about possibly in the range of 0.5, 0.6, 0.7 next year, and then still 1%. So for the next three years, we'll likely stay at very low growth rates if any at all. And then the final thing I see also too um, in terms of Nigerian economy is, and this is for me is a worrisome one, is the fact that uh, we're, we're going back into a significantly high level of debt. Because as we have failed to actually really diversify the sources of revenue for the government, and really diversify the economy to a point where there are really strong sectors that can compete with the oil and gas industry in terms of generating revenue, in terms of generating funds to actually push capital and expenditures and all that on the economy. We are taking on a lot of debt from IMF, from World Bank, from the Chinese. Our debt service ratio is going to go very high, limiting further capital expenditure and also putting the economy in a state where it's basically struggling to meet up those debt payments and if the government doesn't take any step to actually see how it can push more oil production, get us out of this two million barrel per day uh, range that we've been stocking for like 20 plus years, then I think our debt is going to start to get to a point where it's really telling on the government. It's really telling on the economy. It's really uh, we're back into a place where we start negotiating for debt relief or debt forgiveness again in the next three years. That's where I think we'll be in the next three years again. All right, thank you so much for Apple. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You can subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter on ontrap.substack.com. Again, ontrap.substack.com. And also get notified about future episodes.